Dear Father, we thank you today for this year that you've given us and this time of year to reflect the season in which we can look back on the many blessings you've given us in 2018 and how how truly uh, gracious you were to us and all that happened in this place. Thank you, Father, for this building, for the people who lead us here. Thank you, Father, for the chance to minister in your name. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, bringing us together uh, specifically to teach and learn your word and share that with the city around us, Father. And I thank you, Father, for also the for the things that stretched us, Father, and for the way in which you put before us tasks and challenges and exposed us, Father, to the, the weaknesses that we have so that we might understand your strength, so that we might serve in that strength. Uh, Father, it's so easy uh, for us to just think back to the things that pleased us and call that the success. But, Father, so often in your word, as you tell us, it is the things that, that we do not like that cause us trial that are actually the best things for us. And we know that this last year had some of both for everyone in here, Father, things that pleased us and things that stretched us. But in all of these things, Father, we ask that we have responded in a way that pleases you. And we look forward, Father, to a year of ministry yet to come in which you do that uh, even more. And Father, we turn now to your word. We come to it, Father, with an open heart, with a hope in mind, with a, a desire to learn it, to know it, to share it with others. We ask, Father, that you would uh, present it to us as only you can, using the weak things of a man who speaks, but making it strong in the hearts of those who hear it by your Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we come to the end of our year, and I think it's appropriate that as we do that, that we're also now reaching the end of Matthew's two-chapter section on the miracles of Jesus in the Galilee. And we're at the end of chapter 9 today. Uh, we're in the final group of miracles that Matthew records. And these miracles all center on Jesus' power to restore. In fact, you could sum up all of Jesus' ministry as a, a ministry of restoration, or uh, you could say reconciliation. Paul puts it this way when he writes about Christ's ministry in Colossians. He says in Colossians 1.19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is, in Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In other words, through Christ's atoning death on the cross, he reconciled or restored everything back to the state that it should have been in apart from the damaging effects of sin. So he reconciles fallen humanity to fellowship with God. And he restores peace to the eternal realm when he defeated the enemy. And he returns the fallen earth eventually back to the state in which it was intended to be at the outset of creation. And what Matthew is demonstrating today through these three miracles in his final group is that Christ's divinity includes the power to restore or reconcile all things in these three situations. Now, we've already studied Jesus' first and second miracles in this group. And you remember those two miracles were intertwined into a single story. You had the story of a, of a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She was restored in the sense that Christ healed her and she was previously ostracized from Jewish society. Now she could return in a clean state into fellowship. And then you had the 12-year-old girl who had died, and of course Jesus restores her to life itself when he resurrected her. But as you stand back and you look at those first two examples in this third group of miracles, you begin to see a pattern emerging. 
This final group of miracles illustrates Jesus' restoration of creation from the damaging effects of sin. Because the Bible says there were three major consequences because of the fall of mankind. First, sin separated humanity from fellowship with God. Secondly, it put all of humanity under the condemnation of death, a sentence of death. And then lastly, it blinds us, spiritually speaking, it blinds us to understanding spiritual truth. And we all descended from Adam. All of us coming naturally from Adam means we all came in a state of sin. We all inherited that sin. You know, when the Bible talks about original sin, it's not saying that we're being punished for something that Adam did. What the Bible is saying is that we inherit a nature that was created in Adam at the moment he fell. When he acted contrary to the word of God, his spiritual nature changed in a permanent way, a way that could only be rectified by God himself. And that nature was passed down through humanity to us. By faith in Christ, though, that condition can be reversed, the Bible says, or restored. And the three miracles we're studying in this last group illustrate Christ's power to restore each of those three consequences that come because of sin. So like the woman who was ostracized from Jewish society, well, Jesus put an end to her separation. And likewise, by faith in Christ, he puts an end to our separation from the Father, making us clean, as it were. And like that young girl who had died, Jesus restored her to physical life. But likewise, in our faith, Jesus is promising to restore us as well from our death to an eternal life. And as we're going to see today in the third example, he also corrects our spiritual blindness. That is, Jesus grants us spiritual knowledge, the ability to understand spiritual truth. So as we look at the, the final miracle here in this group tonight, that's the topic, that's the subject of this miracle. It's Jesus restoring spiritual insight. And what better way to illustrate that than through the story of the healing of blind men? And that's what we look at tonight. Now, Before we look at this final example, I need to give you a bit of a warning. And the warning has to do with how we're going to approach the text tonight. As you know, my normal style and the style of our ministry and our church in general is to take the Bible as it comes, that is, verse by verse, looking at the text as it's presented. And we're still doing that, of course, tonight. But tonight I'm also going to ask you to do a little, uh, I'll call it mental juggling. And by that I mean this. We're going to have to move around just a little bit between this chapter, chapter 9, and another chapter in Matthew's Gospel in order to make complete sense of what we're seeing tonight. And that is a little different from my normal style, as you know. So what do I mean by this mental juggling? Well, you've heard me explain in the past that the three miracles in this final group in chapter 9 all took place at a later point than the miracles that preceded it in these two chapters. Specifically, these three miracles all happen after chapter 12, after the events of chapter 12 in Matthew. How do I know this? Well, as we saw last time, all three of these miracles follow a pattern that you won't find in the previous miracles. Beginning in chapter 12, as Jesus performs miracles, he always requires that the miracle be preceded by some demonstration of faith on the part of the person being healed. Before chapter 12, Jesus never made that requirement. Secondly, after he performs any kind of miracle, he always asks that the person keep the miracles quiet, that he keep silent about it and not share what has happened. Here again, that is not something Jesus was asking prior to chapter 12. Those changes in his ministry were a response to some event, to a specific event, 
that occurs in that chapter, in chapter 12. Now, when we get to chapter 12, we'll have a chance to fully understand what happens and why it's significant and why it changes Jesus' ministry. But in the meantime, because these three miracles in chapter 9 are taken from that later period and moved up into this chapter by Matthew, we have to get some understanding today of why that change took place in order to understand what's going on in this scene. So for now, let's just dive into chapter 9. Let's look at the miracles, the miracle that we're talking about today. And then I'll guide you through a conversation that looks at how chapter 12 relates to this scene. Begin reading in chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. All right, well, our story tonight is relatively simple. You have Jesus moving along, two blind men following him, crying out for healing. But right away, there's an interesting quality to this story, because as you notice, Jesus does not respond immediately to their request. Jesus doesn't actually address the men until he reaches the home, we're told, in verse 28. So that means Jesus just continued walking on to his destination for some period of time while these guys pursued him, seeking mercy. Now, given that they're blind, this wasn't an easy task, as you can imagine. It would have been a challenge for them to keep up. Perhaps they followed the noise of the crowd, or in desperation, they clung on to people who were on the edge of the gaggle. We're not sure, but eventually, as Jesus comes to the home... They find him, they catch up to him, and then they eventually get what they wanted. Jesus consents to healing them. But he only does it, you notice, after they confess faith in him. So this story starts to beg several questions. For example, why did Jesus ignore the blind men's request as they walked, and then only to give it to them later when they reached the house? If he was inclined to heal them at all, why didn't he just do it when he had the opportunity on the way? And then secondly, why is he making faith a prerequisite? Why does he ask this interesting question before he's willing to do the healing? Now again, the answers to these questions are connected to the events of chapter 12 because this healing took place after those events. So the short answer is this. Jesus is asking his question to understand if these men truly have faith in him as the Messiah. But to understand how they came to that understanding... That's really the issue here. Why are these blind men convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah? And I think it's impossible to understand that question without understanding what happened prior to this moment in chapter 12. So, we need to go take a look at that moment just briefly. What we're going to do is piece together several scenes that took place in the order they took place so that we can understand the moment we're looking at here. And that requires that we go to chapter 12. So hold your thumbs in chapter 9 and flip over to chapter 12 just for a moment. We're going to go to chapter 12, verse 22. And let's read there just briefly. Verse 22, it says, Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus. And he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, we're going to stop there. That's all we need out of chapter 12. But at this point, at this point in chapter 12, Jesus, we're told, casts out a demon from a man, and the demon had made the man mute by his presence. 
And that healing in chapter 12, as I said already, takes place before the one that we're now looking at with the blind men in chapter 9. So as Jesus performs that miracle, you notice the crowd who witnessed it starts to wonder aloud whether Jesus was, quote, the son of David. Now, the son of David is a term from the Old Testament that means the Messiah. The Bible tells us that the Messiah, when he would come, would descend from the family line of David, from King David. And because that's how the Bible represents the lineage of the Messiah, the Jews began referring to that coming Messiah as the son of David, as in the descendant of David. And now you see the crowd using that messianic term to describe Jesus, which is telling us that something they saw in that moment led them to consider that Jesus was the promised Messiah. It was the miracle, of course, the miracle of casting out a mute demon. So there's obviously something different about this particular miracle that causes the crowd to come to this conclusion. But then you notice they phrase their conclusion not as a statement, but as a question. Because at the same time, though they recognized something that told them this man was the Messiah, they looked at Jesus and they saw his unassuming appearance and the fact that he didn't look very impressive, and it caused them to have some doubt concerning their conclusion. And so they asked their religious leaders who were standing by, this can't be the son of David, can it? Now, let's ask the first fundamental question we need to answer out of chapter 12, which is, what was it about that miracle that persuaded the crowd to begin to consider Jesus could be their Messiah? Well, you might remember back at the beginning of chapter 8 when we started this section on Jesus' miracles, we had that original miracle that opened the chapter of Jesus healing the leper. And I told you back at that time that in all of Israel's history, since the giving of the law, there has not been any record of a Jew having been healed of leprosy. And yet, curiously, you have in the law, in Leviticus 13, a chapter devoted to giving Israel instructions on how to deal with a leper who has been healed. So you have the law anticipating the healing of a leper, and yet no leper had ever been healed. And that incongruity led the rabbis of Israel to seek for an explanation. Why did God give us a law concerning an event that never happens? And as they considered that question, the rabbis came to the conclusion that the law that the Lord must have reserved certain miracles for his Messiah so that when the Messiah would come to Israel he could perform these unique miracles and distinguish himself from everyone else and demonstrate he was truly the Messiah because miracles are not unprecedented in Israel's history i mean you have men like Moses and Elijah and, and Elisha these men were anointed by God to do ma- uh, marvelous things great miracles including raising men from the dead So when the Messiah came and he did similar miracles, the question is, how would people know that this man was truly the Messiah and not just another prophet anointed to do similar things? Well, the answer was messianic miracles. That is, these specific kinds of miracles that had been reserved for the Messiah, never given to anyone else prior to that, and they would then authenticate the Messiah's ministry. And the rabbis began to see this in their own text, in the law, in the case of things like healing a leper. And another of these messianic miracles that the rabbis seized upon was the casting out of a mute demon. Now at this point, I'm sure you're wondering, why is casting out a mute demon one of these messianic miracles? What makes it so? Well, the answer to that question awaits us in chapter 12, and I'm going to defer until chapter 12 to answer that one for you. For now... All we need to understand for today is that the crowd's reaction 
to that miracle shows us that they recognized it was one of those messianic miracles. It's clear to them that when they see Jesus cast out a mute demon, they see one of the calling cards of Messiah. And that's why they all say to themselves, oh my goodness, this can't be the son of David, can it? Now, that same event that is of casting out a mute demon, that same event happens a second time in Jesus' ministry, which, interestingly enough, is in chapter 9 of Matthew, right where we are right now. It's, in fact, the next part of the text. I want you to go back to 9, and I want you to look where we left off in verse 32 now, and look what we find waiting for us there. The text says, As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him, After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed, and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, at this point, we're in the middle of our mental juggling. As I warned you, we're moving around a little to try to put some things together in chronological order. Don't worry, though, we're coming back to the discussion of the healing of the blind men, but I'm giving you background here to help explain what happened in their situation. And in this chapter, chapter 9, you find this final example of a miracle. This is the last miracle that Matthew records in this two-chapter section that we're studying. This is one of Jesus casting out a mute demon again. Now, this is the same type of miracle as the one that we just looked at in chapter 12, but this is a different moment than the moment in chapter 12. So let's put these in order. You have the healing of the mute man in chapter 12. That takes place. And then at some point after that, you have this miracle in chapter 9 taking place. This one comes after chapter 12. And this last miracle in chapter 9 is not considered part of the group of three that we're studying now. This is actually a separate miracle. If you you look at the way Matthew constructed chapters 8 and 9, he had three groups of three miracles. Each group reflects a different aspect of Jesus' power and authority. And we have before and after these groups separate miracles. You have the one at the very beginning of chapter 8, which is the one of healing the leper. And you have this one now at the end of chapter 9, which is healing a mute demon. These two act as bookends on either side of the three groups. They are both messianic miracles. They are miracles that authenticate the Messiah uniquely. And Matthew puts them at the beginning and at the end to frame the whole conversation that he's showing us in these two chapters, which is Jesus is the Messiah. So this one that comes at the end is a messianic miracle that drives the crowd's understanding. Notice in verse 33, this crowd says, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So once more, You see a crowd watching this same miracle and acknowledging that it is unique, and they come to the unavoidable conclusion, in other words, Jesus is the Messiah. Because this is the proof that the rabbis had taught them to look for. When you see a man coming who can heal lepers or cast out mute demons, that is your Messiah. But then you notice in the text in verse 34, those same rabbis who opposed Jesus contradict their own teaching. Remember, Jesus had denied the authority of the Pharisees in things that he said. He had denied their rule book, the Mishnah, as having any authority. This 
obviously concerned the Pharisees, and as a result, they began to oppose Jesus. And now that he has done this messianic miracle, and the crowds around him are beginning to recognize it and embrace him potentially as Messiah, the Pharisees find themselves in this difficult situation. They've painted themselves into a corner. They have told the crowd in years past, these are the miracles that will authenticate the Messiah. But now that Jesus is doing them, They don't want to acknowledge him as Messiah, and so they're forced to come up with an alternative explanation for why Jesus is doing these things. And in verse 34, the explanation that they come up with is, he is operating in Satan's power. They couldn't deny the miracle actually happened. Everybody saw it happen. So what they say instead is, this is being done by uh, Satan's sorcery. It's not being done by God's authority. And by the way, in chapter 12, the first time Jesus does this miracle, they offered exactly the same explanation. All right, now, after we've gone through a little of this mental juggling, where have we landed? Let me sum it up for you. You have Jesus performing an important sign, a messianic miracle, casting out a mute demon in chapter 12. The crowds who were present in that moment, they saw it and they recognized its significance. And as he does it the first time, the crowds respond in unison, this can't be the son of David, can it? And then at some later point, Jesus does the same sign again. And in the second case, now that's in chapter 9, in the second time that he does it, another crowd seeing that sign comes to a similar conclusion. They say, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel before. So in both cases, you have a crowd testifying that Jesus is confirming he is the Messiah, and at the same time, in both cases, you have religious leaders denying it, declaring that Jesus is simply doing work of the devil. And in at least one of those crowds, and maybe in both of those crowds, you have these two blind men. Now, they didn't witness these miracles firsthand, of course, they're blind. But they did hear the mute man speaking, And they heard the crowd murmuring about the fact that this might be the Messiah. And they heard the Pharisees answering the crowd by denying the meaning of the sign. And in the midst of all of that hubbub, they heard that one phrase, the son of David. And like any other Jew in their day, these men knew what that phrase meant. They knew it was a title of the Messiah. And instantly, for these blind men, everything became clear. And they seize on that title, and they begin using it, and they call out to Jesus with it. And in verse 27, back to our story, we're told that as they go along calling out, Son of David, Son of David, they're trying to get his attention. So the question now, and this is the central issue in this story, what did these blind men see that the rest of the crowd could not see, despite having sight? Because these two men are going after Jesus, calling him the Son of David, but as we'll learn in chapter 12, the crowd did not. The crowd agreed with the teaching of their Pharisees. The answer is that their blindness gave them a distinct advantage. Because there are two ways by which we generally discover truth, the Bible says, either by faith or by sight. Now, sight is the Bible's way of referring to the the learning of things through our intellect, through our knowledge gained by study or investigation or the evaluation of facts and circumstances. It's not merely a reference to what you can see with your eyeballs. It refers more generally to what a human being can understand through first-hand experience. That's one way in which we gather an understanding of truth, by sight. The second way we get to know something truthfully, the Bible says, is by faith. Faith, the Bible says, is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. 
What it means is that you accept something as true, even though you cannot know it by first-hand experience. You accept it on the basis of a testimony. You receive as true a testimony which you did not experience yourself personally. And so in the matter of salvation, for example, faith would mean accepting as true the testimony of the Bible when it declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in the case of these two blind men, because of their blindness, they had no choice but to gain an understanding of truth on the basis of faith, on the basis of testimony, rather than on the basis of sight. The conviction of things not seen, which is a particularly appropriate definition in the case of these blind men. Because I want you to imagine how difficult it must have been for these men to try to understand what was going on in that moment. They could not see Jesus. They could not see him performing any miracles. All they could sense was the reaction of the crowds. They could hear the crowds. They could hear the man talking who had been mute and now could speak. But they had to balance all of that against what they heard from the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day. These were the respected men of the day. These were the men who the crowd would have assumed would know the most on matters of this kind. And those men are telling the crowd, don't believe it. And yet somehow, these two blind men as they balanced out what they heard from each side, they came to the conclusion that they needed to put faith in the testimony of Jesus, in the testimony of that mute man, and that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. So back to our question. How did these men arrive at this understanding of faith in Christ, which eluded the rest of the crowd? The answer is this. They heard another testimony as well. That is, they had heard the testimony of the Word of God. Now, how do we know this? Well, because as they enter the home with Jesus, he asks them that one question. He says, do you believe I'm able to do this? Now, take note of that question for a moment. Notice, Jesus does not ask them if they believe he is the Messiah. That would have been the question I think we would have assumed or expected Jesus to ask. But he doesn't ask that. He doesn't even ask them, do you believe that God can heal you? No, what he asks them is, do you believe I can do this? Which is to say, Do you believe that I have the power of God to heal you right now? Now, we know he's essentially asking them to declare faith in him, but you have to question why he phrased the question in that way. The reason is because he's asking them if they agree with the testimony of Scripture, that is, with a prophecy in Isaiah, which is connected to the earlier miracle he had just performed. So once again, let me set the scene for you in case anyone is confused because of all my jumping around. You have in chapter 12 a crowd that includes these two blind men. They watch Jesus cast out the mute demon, and they start saying, Is he the son of David? The blind men hear this. They hear the man who had been mute begin to speak, and they understand that's a very significant moment. They hear the Pharisees saying, It's not what you think. He's actually a sorcerer. And they take that into consideration. But in their heart, they also remember something they had heard in Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, you hear this concerning the coming Messiah. Isaiah 29, as part of a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, verse 19, it says, The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And then you jump in that passage down to Isaiah 35, 5, and it goes to saying this, Then... The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabah. 
So these men, because like any in Israel, they would have been taught the word of God growing up. These men had learned that in Isaiah, the word of God declares that to Israel, when their coming Holy One arrives, the Holy One of Israel, or the Messiah, that his arrival would be accompanied by miraculous healing. Deaf ears, it says, would be unstopped. Blind eyes would be opened. The needy of mankind would rejoice. The afflicted would increase in their gladness. And then you notice, it says, the mute will be made to shout for joy. So these two blind men who couldn't see Jesus, couldn't see his miracle, these men remembered what the Word of God said. They remembered that the Word of God said that the Messiah would be able to cast out mute demons. That is, he would be able to let a mute man speak again. And as they hear the mute man in front of them begin to speak, and as they hear the crowd reacting to it in the predictable way, They put that together in faith in their heart and they come to the conclusion, this is the Messiah who Isaiah promised. And the same Messiah who can make mute men speak, the Bible says, would also be able to give sight to the blind. And those men wanted their sight. They believed the testimony of the mute man. They believed the testimony of Scripture. They came to an appreciation of the truth concerning Jesus by virtue of those testimonies. They had faith, in other words, the conviction of things not seen. And they acted in faith to declare Jesus the Son of David, following Him, seeking His mercy. And so when they finally get to Jesus and He asks them that question, Do you believe I am able to do this? What Jesus is asking is, Do you believe the word of God concerning the Messiah? For the word of God in Isaiah says that the Messiah will be able to do this. He's saying to those men, You heard I have cast out the mute demon. You know the word says that the Messiah will do that and more. And do you believe that I am the one who can also give you your sight? These two men are experiencing what I think is a quintessential test of faith. That is to accept the testimony of the word of God without relying on sight. And to that question, the blind men respond, Yes, Lord. And so Jesus touches their eyes, saying, It shall be done according to your faith, which means that because they believe the word when it says that a Messiah can come and open the eyes of the blind, he would do what it says. They saw something that the crowd could not see, and so they received their eyesight. How is it then? How is it then that these men who were in the same situation as the crowd, and yet they came to a different conclusion. The answer is, these men had a spiritual insight granted them by God in order to understand the things of God, to perceive the truth by the testimony of the Word of God. And in their final example here, within these three miracles that end chapter 9, this final example of these blind men, you find the third and final illustration of how Jesus' ministry of restoration will correct for the effects of sin. You have humanity's sin robbing us of our capacity to receive and understand spiritual truth, which we see evidenced by how the crowd reacted. They did not receive spiritual truth. And it's because as Adam disobeyed the word of God, his spiritual nature became corrupt. He passed that down to us. We still operate in that same way until we come to faith in Jesus. And it is by the work of Christ in our heart that our spiritual blindness is removed. The Bible des- describes our spiritual blindness this way. In Second Corinthians 4, 3, Paul says, 
Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Bible says that Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded, it says, the minds of the unbelieving. And you may, when you read this, you may think, that the Bible is saying that Satan is out in the world now actively blinding people, preventing people from knowing the gospel. And that's not what this is talking about. What Paul is describing is the fall. He's describing the initial effect of the fall. As Satan, the god of this world, brought sin into the life of woman and then Adam by his deception, that effect on mankind was to blind mankind. And we're all living in the effects of that initial moment. It's the consequential effect of what God of this world did, of what Satan did, that we are all born into this life in spiritually blind conditions. And it takes something that God must do in our heart to remove that barrier, to give us back our spiritual sight, our first-hand knowledge of Him. You see, again, that's the problem. You can't understand truth except by either sight or by faith. And when it comes to God, sight does not work. Because of our sin, we have been cut off from God. Our fellowship with God has been interrupted. We do not walk with God in the garden as Adam and woman once did. So you do not have the ability to gain a first-hand knowledge of God through personal experience because you are separated from Him by by sin. So that requires that the only method remaining for us to understand God is by faith, by accepting as true a testimony from the Word of God. That testimony coming from the Word of God is our means to know the truth of something we cannot see otherwise. And we come to that understanding, the Bible says, because God, by His Spirit, brings us an appreciation of that truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What Paul says is that to know anything of truth concerning God, you must Have that knowledge given to you by God. There is no other way to know about God. And if you want to learn about things of this world, well then you can rely on physical sight. But if you want to learn about eternal things, you have to rely on spiritual insight granted to you by the Spirit Himself, by God. Paul says, we receive from God through His Spirit a knowledge of things given to us. And then Paul says we can share those things with others, we can speak them to others, but Paul says even as you do that, your speaking of these things to other people does not equate to a first-hand experience with God. They're in the same situation you were in. They're receiving a testimony here again. And therefore, like you, they must have the Spirit of God in them communicating the truth of it, or they will not receive it either. Because they have to receive it in faith if they are to know it. That's the condition that humanity is in. The world over, men and women must receive truth concerning God from God by His Spirit or they will never find it because it is not something we can find in first-hand experience. That's the difference between the crowd and these two blind men. Because of their blindness, they had no choice but to rely on the testimony of God's Word and the testimony of the one who had been healed by Christ. They had nothing else to draw on. Like the crowd, these men recognized the meaning of the miracle. But unlike the crowd, 
They did not evaluate Jesus' appearance. You see, that was their great advantage. Their great advantage was they were forced by their physical condition to rely exclusively on testimony. But the crowd, because they possessed their sight, chose to go with sight over faith in trying to understand things of God. They took up a position of judgment. By their eyes, they looked at Jesus. And what they saw was a fairly unassuming man, a fairly unattractive man, Scripture tells us. Certainly not a man that looked like the kind of impressive sort that they expected the Messiah to be. And as they gazed on this lowly carpenter's son, a man without stature, without accomplishments in Israel, a man who was despised by their political and religious leadership, they came to the conclusion that, nah, it's not possible. I mean, this man cannot be the son of David, can it? In fact, you notice that in their reaction, they phrase it as a question, not as a statement. Why? Because it reflects the doubt in their heart created by their sight. That was the difference between these two blind men and the rest of the crowd. Because of their blindness, they had no choice except to rely on the testimony of God's word and on what they heard from that man who had been healed. They had nothing else to draw on. Like the crowd, they they understood the, the meaning of the miracle, they understand the significance of the miracle, but unlike the crowd, they did not have their sight to get in the way. That crowd, because they had their sight, began to override their spiritual understanding with what they could see firsthand. And what did they see? Well, they saw a lowly carpenter's son who had no stature, who had no accomplishments uh, of any religious sort in Israel. They were watching a man who was despised by their religious leadership. This was not the kind of man they imagined when they thought of who the Messiah would be. And their sight overruled Their faith in Christ. And yet here you have two blind men who because they do not have the sight getting in the way, a sight that could not replace faith when it comes to things of God, they were able to see what the sighted world was not able to see. And what they saw was a God fulfilling His Word, doing as His Word testifies, keeping His promises in Scripture. That's why the Bible says to walk by faith and not by sight. Because your sight cannot know things of God. All it can do, all it ever will do, is either confirm what you know by faith, or, in the worst case, the enemy might use your sight to distract you from what is given in the Word of God. Look, signs and wonders are certainly captivating, and God will use them from time to time to get our attention, but they are never used to provide the sole source of knowledge of God. That is to say that they do not compete with our knowledge of Him by faith in the testimony of His Word. In some cases, they confirm perhaps what we see in Scripture, but generally speaking, they lead us away from the truth, especially when we recognize that the enemy has the power to use signs and wonders to distract us. So that's the pattern in the unbelieving world. The the pattern in the unbelieving world, like this crowd we see, is that they would refuse to accept the testimony of the Word of God because of what they see instead being more to their liking. But even within the life of the believer, even in the church, you can find those who, though they've accepted Jesus by faith and they are saved by that faith, nonetheless, they then try to follow Christ by a walk of sight rather than by a walk of faith. And classically, that problem takes one of two forms. Either you have believers in the church who seek for experiences rather than for truth, that is the truth of God's Word, 
Or you will find believers who place greater trust in the world and in what they see in the world than they do in what is coming in the next world. Now, in the first case, you're talking about believers who would gravitate to a certain group or a church or to certain individuals who offer them spectacle and power and and signs and wonders. And because of what these groups or people can do, the the, the supposed miracles they do, or uh, the way in which the church services are, are carefully orchestrated with pageantry and with lots of spectacle, they gravitate to this as a source of power, They are captivated by it. And for them, these experiences become truth. They become the thing that defines for them spiritual knowledge. But in reality, because they're not searching the scriptures for truth, because they're relying on sight, on first-hand experience, on emotion, they're easily manipulated. They're manipulated by con artists. They're manipulated by groups who, who want to do certain things together. And they're manipulated by the enemy, ultimately who pulls us away from a study of God's Word and from the truth by distracting us with this kind of spectacle, seeking experience rather than seeking a knowledge of God and His Word. In the second case, we're talking about believers whose life goals will be centered on achievements in this world rather than on positioning ourselves for the next. And walking by sight rather than walking by faith means looking at this world as if it's the only real thing, the only thing that matters, the only thing worth seeking after. And certainly, for a time, this world is real to us, no doubt. It's, it's real while we're here. But the Word of God says it's not real forever. That is, it doesn't last forever. And knowing that, knowing that this world is temporary, would lead us to walk by faith devoting ourselves to the cause of the kingdom, which is permanent, it is real, that is, the life we live into eternity is real, and it is permanent. But the problem for us now, of course, is that we can't see that kingdom. But what the scriptures tell us is, it's coming. It's coming soon. And by living in faith now, we would place greater emphasis on the reality of that coming world, of the one we cannot see, over the one that is temporarily here now, the one we do see. You see, once again, we're talking about living in a way that does not let what we see override what we know in our hearts by faith. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says He restores your ability to perceive spiritual truths because He gives you the Spirit who can explain them to you. And by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, you come to know about these important spiritual truths of who you are and who Christ is and where the world is going and what's coming next and so on. More than that, though, the Spirit of God living inside you empowers you to live according to these things that you learn. But you only gain the benefits of that if you apply it. And applying what you're learning through the Word of God is a process of denying yourself, denying what your eyes see, that is, denying what the world would tell you, and yielding to the Spirit in His instruction. And that's what Jesus asked of these blind men. Do they believe he was able to do this? That is, do they believe the testimony of the word of God? Does it override what their intellect, what their human experience might teach them? Humanity would teach a blind man you can't be healed. That blindness is a permanent condition. And the Bible taught these men that the same one who could do the impossible of casting out a mute demon could do the the impossible of healing their blindness. And they believed, they had faith, their sight was not an impediment. Friends, that's why we started this church barely 11 months ago. Because we wanted to be a place in this community, and for the sake of the world, through the internet, 
where the people of God would encounter the Word of God in a consistent and meaningful way, so that in time, as the church is exposed to these spiritual truths that they might be overlooking in other churches, that we would grow in our walk of faith. And as we would grow in our walk of faith, we're being prepared. We're being prepared for the kingdom to come. And as we enter into this new year that's ahead of us, I want to ask you to give some time in your own life to reflecting on how you're walking through this life that God has given you, through this world that you're now occupying. Are you walking by faith, trusting in the testimony of God's word, not allowing your sight, your first-hand experiences to distract you, to, to override what you know to be true by faith? I think for a lot of us, this idea of walking this way, of walking our life of faith, uh, it's a difficult task. In fact, some of us may perceive it to be practically impossible. And if that's how you feel, well, let me start at the very beginning for you. Unless and until you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you cannot walk by faith, that it is impossible to please God until such time as you have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But for the rest of us who do know Jesus as Lord, well, for us, the difficulty is that we probably don't know enough about his word. That is, we don't understand what he's asking of us enough in order to put our faith in that testimony. And think back to our blind men for a moment. Had they not heard the word of God in Isaiah, then they would not have been prepared for the moment in which they saw Jesus performing that sign. And the same is true for us in a different sense. Unless we know what the word of God says concerning uh, our relationship with Christ, his power and authority in our life, his goals and purpose for the church, and his plans for the future of creation, unless these things are on the front of our minds, then we're not going to be in a position to operate according to those truths in the midst of our daily life. Our sight will be far more impactful to our decision making than our faith in the word of God if we do not know the word of God. So, in either case, if you do not know Jesus as Lord, and that's why you have no prospect of walking by faith in God's Word, or if you know God through Christ, but yet you do not know His Word, His commandments, well, in either of those cases, friends, you've come to the right place. Because in this place, in this church, we will teach you about Jesus, and we will teach you about His Word. And as you walk with us, By those things that you learn, we will walk together in faith, preparing for the kingdom to come. That's what we're here to do, and I hope you'll do it with us in this year to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for your spirit. We thank you, Father, for your son. And we thank you, Father, for the mercy and grace we received in him. And we ask, Father, that as we walk that you, by your Spirit, would impress upon our hearts the truth of the testimony of the Word of God, and that you would encourage us and equip us to walk faithfully according to what we learn, and that you would not let our sight of the things offered in this world override our heart and cause us to drift away and to do the things we ought not do, but rather, Father, I pray you will make the kingdom so real in our hearts that it is the only thing that consumes our attention so that we might be prepared for it on the day that it arrives. And Father, we ask that it would arrive soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.